Welcome to Bank of Singapore Unplugged. Welcome everyone to this special Bank of Singapore event on winning with AI. Today's event features three thinkers and doers, entrepreneurs and leaders who are winning with AI. We're going to kick off with Dr. Aisha Khanna, who is, represents the AI solutions provider Addo AI, Ivan Vachkov, founder of the healthcare startup Calibra, a digital well-being companion, and Charles Anderson, a leading industry expert working at the intersection of IoT, smart cities, and prop tech. There is a paradox in the heart of this issue of smart cities. It's the place where you have the maximum saturation of technology and therefore the potential for the maximum amount of redundancy of human labor. How smart is that? And the, what are the people going to do in the smart city if the AI has taken care of everything? And that was the crux of the question here is, you know, which human jobs or sectors do you expect to be made redundant the most? And, and presumably that's going to be in the urban environment, in addition, obviously, industrial areas mm -hmm. and so forth. But as we know, services sector work can also be automated just as quickly as, uh, as you know, uh, you know, um, um, uh, menial or hand-based kind of manufacturing work. And so, in other words, which, which industries are going to be the most disrupted? Well, when you look at a city, oh, I'm actually going to tie it back to healthcare on this one, um, because it's kind of the same thing. Think about how you're doing the predictive, um, or you're looking at someone's data, the health data, so you can actually predict when something's going to happen. That's what we're using data for within cities and buildings as well. You want to know when something's going to break down or when it's not going to be running efficiently. And if we find out that it's not running efficiently, we want to give it advice so that it actually knows how to improve itself. Um, so I think you'll start seeing some of those type things goes away. That could mean people who are doing automated tasks that can easily be replicated. Or if you drive more efficiencies, that means you can actually get rid of some of those jobs. On the other hand, we are so short of people who have AI and data skills and know what to do with it, and especially the crossover between the data side and the AI side and the line of business side, um, that there's a lot of new jobs being created as well. Mm -hmm. And we've heard these types of things for centuries now. Anytime somebody creates the new thing, we think that the world's never going to be the same. We always tend to find ways to create new types right. of businesses. Here's an area where prop tech and smart cities may come together, which is people who want to think about what, what the next tier one cities are that they should be investing in. Obviously, it's so important right now because in the, in the context of the pandemic, people have said, well, this is going to be terrible for Los Angeles and for New York and for London. They're too expensive. People can move to cheaper places, do more remote work. So it's a two-part question, really. The first is, what do you think are the new tier one geographies or cities in a, in a remote world? And also, especially for those who are investing in real estate, um, what do those cities look like? Should they be much more mixed use you know, than what we've seen so far and so forth? How would you design, especially because you're working in a number of these cities in Asia, um, how would you design the smart city of the future? See, cities get scary because it's just so big. So I like the fact that the industry has realized we need to break it down into smaller digestible chunks. So what you mentioned there about mixed use facilities where you combine residential, commercial, retail, all in one thing, you'll see a lot more of those types of developments. And that's where I think the real opportunity is going forward. Those tier ones are still going to be there, but you'll see more mixed use ones like one Bangkok, like Pio Labor Quarter here, uh, Bartia City in India, where it's all built around this model of let's see what we can create. Now, what gets interesting about that is you can run it because it's smaller, more efficiently but you're also controlling more different aspects of data. So it's not just the city data. You're gonna be getting things from the retail side as well. And you'll have all these different citizen and consumer experiences you can um, hopefully eventually monetize going forward. So it is sort of creating this little bubble that you can control. 
So you made a point, you named a couple of Asian countries or cities or districts. How about globally? Just name a couple of the next tier one. I still think the big cities are always going to be attractive. I think what's happened is you see this people jumping away from it going, I don't want to live here anymore. But now that prices go back down, they'll get an influx of people coming back in. We're always going to want to be in the cool place, but maybe we don't want to have to do an hour long commute anymore. You'll see a lot more spoken hub type things, whether they're yes. smaller places. I'm not convinced the idea of Neam, are they going to have the big line going there for a hundred miles and you just sort of go along that. That's Saudi Arabia. In Saudi Arabia, if that's the right idea. But I do think we are learning that people like not spending all their time in traffic and yeah. going to the office for an hour. If I can spend more time at home with my family, um, go to the gym, whatever it might be. Well, there's a very uh, highly upvoted question here uh, that really for all three of you, uh, weigh in, please. You agree that certain industries gain a much bigger advantage when leveraging AI, if yes, which ones in your opinion are most relevant? Now, as a as background, there's been a lot of studies saying that, you know, retail or hospitality or this then are going to be the first to be automated or, or have the most disruption through AI. With that in mind, what would each of the three of you vote? Let's start with that. I would say that uh, logistics is going to be a big winner because as we have more and more people that are moving to e-commerce and uh, and retail, what we're the, the getting the goods to them remains a tricky problem. So uh, we see everywhere, even in Pakistan, you know, even the trucks uh, uh, from the Uber of the Middle East, which was Kareem, their founders, after they sold their startup to Uber, they have now formed a company that does truck logistics. And anything in transportation, because uh, along with the telecommunications and fintech, transport is the nervous system of a city, we're going to see a lot of upside in there. I would also like to point out that when 5G comes, then the ability of a lot of sensor data comes manufacturing is actually the uh, the one that will have the most upside it's actually very behind at the moment largely because it hasn't been digitized but we do know that once the smart factories come online and they will when the cost of exchanging data and storing data goes further down we're going to see humongous improvements in optimization and in performance of, of manufacturing sector as well so logistics, manufacturing, Iman, what's your vote? I was going to hope for governance, but I think <laughs> um, we leave that uh, sort of in, in, into the future. To me, they're going to be education and consumption. Uh, and by consumption, I mean um, a, a very clear trend is this extreme customization. If Aisha's uh, view of just-in-time logistics, more efficient manufacturing comes to bear, then the abundance of choice will be overwhelming. Um, and I think human beings don't handle choices very well, as we know. So uh, one area would be AI, just like it does with TikTok, anticipating that you feel like a tuna salad this afternoon, or anticipating that you might need new trainers, and basically handling that, that choice for you. So that would be one. And in education, I'm hoping that it brings democratization to higher education, finally. We're seeing huge disruption in the Ivy League sort of type universities in the first and the second tier. I'm hoping that, uh, you know, in the next five, ten years, a kid in Lagos is going to have just as much access to uh, the Stanford professor as a kid sitting in Palo Alto. So that's that's my hope. And I think we're seeing the early signs of that. So Charles, your your dream come true in five, 10 years, the fully saturated 5G IoT world, which sectors are your pick as winners? I'll tell you one that no one's really predicting that you should keep an eye out for is real estate. And it's because if you think about it, everything is a building. We work in buildings, um, we shop in buildings, we eat in buildings, you know, we live in buildings, it's our homes we are managing them very, very poorly. And the real estate industry doesn't have a real estate problem. It has a data problem. 
And the reason I'm optimistic is some of the big vendors from the outside are sniffing around and going, wait a minute, I solved data problems. So it was interesting, there was an announcement from Telstra, they're partnering with Microsoft in Australia to create digital twins of buildings. Now you think, well, why? Neither of them have any real estate experience. Well, Telstra owns the enterprise market and customers there. Microsoft knows how to solve data problems and it's a data problem, it's not a real estate problem. So that means if Microsoft is doing this, you can bet that the AWSs and Googles will be looking at it as well. Once that happens, there's ways you can go across the large corporate buildings, commercial buildings like this, retail buildings, and better manage our homes as well. And I think once that ball gets rolling and those big vendors come in there and they tend to move a little bit quicker than traditional real estate companies, mm -hmm. um, I think that'll be a really exciting one to watch. So that sounds like a prop tech frontier. Yeah. And then in terms of uh, real estate, it's actually a much bigger, you know, sort of predictive analytics. Yes around an entire urban environment. Uh, it's just think about your whole estate that you yeah. have. I mean, how do you better manage everything from your lifts um, to your energy, to your lighting, you optimize the experience for your employees. Because let's face it, we want to get everybody back in the offices. We have to make them want to come back, which means you got to find ways to make them comfortable being back in there. And it's not going to be the same as before where you can just ram them in and from plant office and make them sit on top of each other. You'll need space. There's going to be more competition on that. So I think it's going to be exciting how we leverage analytics to do that. So what if someone pulls the plug? Because that's actually the next most upvoted question here. We have an over, we, we risk, we run the risk of being overly reliant on AI in many, many ways, medical, transport, smart city, so forth. This could be catastrophic is the exact word here in the question. What for each of you, I mean, it, would you put up a probability, you know, uh, of a risk of this sort of, you know, hypothetical plug being pulled? Are we too reliant on the big data, on the AI to govern our lives? Um, certainly one can imagine the, 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 the um, medical implications of this and so forth. What's your take? How do we defend ourselves individually? How do you invest in a way in resilience against the risk? I'm actually a lot more concerned, not so much about that side of the risk, but of somebody maliciously trying to go after the data, right? city data. Because we already know it's very easy to hack into a system and manipulate it. And if I can go into a city and I can start manipulating some of the machinery, I can basically turn up its temperature until it blows up. And this actually happened at a factory in Germany and someone was killed. Um, so we don't take security seriously. Enough. We don't secure the data at the end point and all the way through its life. And until we do that, we are exposed to risk. And that's not just city. That's across anything where there's a sensor collecting data. <laughs> So Ivan, I think, I, think, I think on medical, uh, I'd like to make two points. One is that we have to appreciate the context, right? In today's world, we're already short 15 million doctors, right? It's, you can see sort of in India what's happening now. You, yeah. you, you, you don't have the capacity to process an aging, richer population, which has higher demand for healthcare. So we have no choice but to deploy AI in medical field. However, we govern it because um, the cost of human life is just too high and the society will pressure us into adopting that. The, the other thing which I'll say is, at the moment, and I think this is to Charles's point, right now the way that uh, we are securing our data and not using AI is we're basically taking all the village gold, putting it in the center of the village and basically putting guards around it. But that guard is basically a system designed on Fortran, you know, 30, 40 years ago, and it's eminently very easily hackable. So our starting base in context is pretty poor. So I'm not concerned about AI. From what I've seen, at least in the healthcare space, in the personal optimization space, and more generally in longevity, the human being is such an accomplished sensor that it connect on waves with another human being that it will be invisible to a machine for a really long time. 
we need to figure out a way to scale that human excellence in, in a hybrid way with AI. I don't see AI triaging patients, you know, you're going to room one, you're going to room two anytime soon. If anything, in diagnostics and in other areas, we desperately need AI to save human lives today. So I hear the concern, but I don't think it's valid for the, for the present time. Aisha, would you disagree? Because, I mean, you gave examples of AI may know us better uh, than our own immediate family, better than we know ourselves. Uh, but also the question about the catastrophic risk. This is it. Like, I think this is a great question. For every time you start to think, I'm going to use AI as a consumer, as a company, the next question is, what's the potential downside? These are two sides of the same technology, and we have to have a balanced approach. Now, there is a systematic way of dealing with this. There is data governance policies. There are tools that you use about metadata and lineage. There is compliance policies. In Singapore, we have certification on data governance and even ethics of AI. There are guidelines to this. So the key is to have the right person. First of all, whether you are an AI specialist or not, you should be asking this question. And I'm telling you, I run an AI firm. We welcome such questions because we have to protect the data. And especially if there is any risk, you need to have a human in the loop. So one of our associate partners advises the army of one of the largest countries in the world, and he works on drones and explainable AI. And he was told by the general, you know, we can make him kill it, but we don't want to because we want a human in the loop because we're not sure of the AI yet. So there are very different ways, well-documented and evolving. And whenever you build an AI system, you want this governance framework around it as well. And that's always considered the boring part, but without that, you get into trouble. Charles, there's a question that's come in uh, directly for you on, uh, on real estate. And this you know, pans back a bit to the macro. You gave Asian examples. We talked a little bit about how you know, the big cities in the world will still be central, but who has an edge specifically in applying AI to prop tech, smart cities, and so on? And are they going to maintain that edge? Um, I think you're going to see Asia's got some great opportunities, and it's going to be driven not only by the technology, but by regulation. Because let's face it, Asia hasn't been at the forefront of driving green building certifications. Right. As these new regulations come in, you create industries here that don't exist today. So that will start driving it. A lot of that is going to be done with AI and other types of sensor solutions as well. So I think I'm very optimistic on that side. The other thing I'm optimistic about is just the fact that Asia is still growing so quickly. We're always going to have new buildings, which means that there's constant place to experiment. Um, in other cities that are more fully developed, it's difficult to find places you can go and test this out. Here, I mean, I work with a lot of people who do developments, and they're always looking for something to showcase you know, that's new and exciting. So I think there's a lot of opportunities within Asia. I'm looking forward to seeing the regulations that come out, particularly from Singapore around this, um, because I think that will drive it. The rest of the region will follow in on Singapore. Um, and hopefully we'll see some other regulations in, uh, in green building, sustainability, and drone usage. Aisha, you've worked directly on the Singaporean regulatory question. Oh, no, I, mean, I think what I wanted to talk about was that real estate is interesting because now with 5G especially, we could put sensors in buildings and it would be affordable. With cloud computing, the cost of analyzing and storing that data is going down, and entirely new data sets are coming as, for example, private satellites go up into the sky. So now, you know, when we tried to use GIS, uh, you know, software and try to build models, it was so expensive. And we had to use the national satellite of Japan and wait for it to do one round of the earth. 
but now you're going to have this like satellite silk road on top of us. And of course, China is setting it up and, and Elon Musk is. As the cost of data goes down, there is so much more opportunity that comes up. So if I was looking at where to invest, I would look at this value chain and see where in the end it goes to real estate, but what are the pieces that are facilitating that? So I would also have more value for investors. I wanted to mention one thing about the surveillance coming from satellites. The prices are plummeting. They've gone down by as much as 90% over the last couple of years. But the market is still growing because because the price point has come down, people are saying, actually, I can afford this data. What can I do with it? Right. So the big gamble there now is like, what can you do? How do you get more specific data? So down to like the 10 centimeter level. Yes. But this area is going to explode in the coming years. Did I hear correctly recently that you can, in fact, float your own satellite for about $10 million? Probably less. Even less? And lower orbit, very low orbit. It's going to get even lower than that because what's happening now is they created these electronic well, they're not going to call it. It's an electric vehicle that's actually a plane that can get up into the high altitudes and release low Earth orbit satellites for a fraction of the price of anything else. So the, the most upvoted question at the moment uh, gets us back to this, you know, pan sectoral mapping. We've covered a lot of ground, actually, and we've dived deeply into the smart city AI space, healthcare, um, and, and in a number of industry examples that Aisha gave. What is the next sector that uh, investors should be looking out for? And uh, all three of you feel free to jump in on that. I'm, I'm happy to go first. Um, I think there's only two sectors that I'm aware of where you see something called a Veblen good. A Veblen good is uh, something that becomes more desirable as it becomes more expensive. You can see that uh, with Harvard education and you can see that with the best of healthcare, right? The more expensive they get, the harder they are, the more demand there is. So to me, education and edtech is going to be the next sector that explodes right. because if you think about people's propensity to consume, education for their children is so important. They'll spend almost anything on that as long as it gives the kids a better chance in the world. And now that we're democratizing that process, the companies that intermediate the best bodies of knowledge with the best distribution and the best reach are going to see gains that are unimaginable right now. So that's where I'm looking at. They will see gains on the back of the cost, however, coming down. Because the Veblen effect is, you know, things get more expensive and therefore more desirable. But here you're talking about democratization of access scale. price and scale, you know, prices coming. Absolutely. What I'm saying is that there's inelastic demand for that. So if you can deliver it more cheaply, then you will be able to extract uneconomic returns in the short and medium term. So those are the, I would add sort of ed tech to that. To that so ed tech absolutely gets uh, probably everyone's vote, including yeah. our uh, many participants. Mm -hmm. uh, Charles, do you have a view on that? Um, I'm going to try to make this a little bit more generic. Anybody who's got a really remote site. So that could be oil and gas, it could be mining, it could be manufacturing plants that aren't in the city center because 5G is gonna be transformative and it's not gonna come from the mobile operators. Private 5G is one of the most exciting things because you can create these high-speed networks at these locations and you can run it without any wires in your plant anymore. And you're starting to see companies like John Deere buying up Spectrum um, because they make big industrial equipment. It goes across many, many square kilometers. Well, now they can set these up and run everything automatically. So this gets exciting, and I think it'll be very transformative. I'm just not sure the mobile operators are going to be able to capitalize on it. Hmm. I think that it depends on which country you're looking at. If you look at e-commerce in certain countries, you feel, oh, I missed the boat. But then you look at other countries uh, like Bangladesh or Pakistan or uh, not traditionally on the map investors, and it's just coming up. You see more VCs going in there, you know, see more connectivity. So there's opportunities across the whole spectrum. Uh, and of course, I totally agree with Ivan on, on uh, EdTech as well. We've seen a huge bump in India's Baiju and this private real estate. I think that's a very exciting area also. You get about 10 seconds I could answer the last question. I think it's really right up your alley, which is 
Can we outwit AI? <laughs> um, I don't know, but we should definitely keep trying. <laughs> yeah, look, That's it's not about outwitting AI. That's the wrong. It's not a competitive thing. So what we need to do is we need to work with it. We need to stand on its shoulders and make it work for us. And uh, that is really the key. And if we govern it and rein it in, then it's like having another, I don't know, like a horse or a dog, or a useful one. <laughs> well, so that in a way is the essence of winning with AI, right? right? It's got to, there has to be some synergy among the individual level, the firm level, the societal level, the governance level. That is most likely to occur in a genuinely smart city and a place where the public takes responsibility for its health. I'm sure uh, wherever you are in the world, you would uh, join me in applauding uh, the excellent insights of our panelists of Charles, Yvonne, Aisha. Thank you so much. Thanks to all of you again. Thanks to Bank of Singapore. And remember to keep on finding ways to win with AI. Thanks so much. This podcast was brought to you by Bank of Singapore.